Welcome back to another episode of Quillette Cetera. Today I'm joined by David Bernstein. David is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which has the mission to support liberal principles of free thought and expression, advance viewpoint diversity, and counter the imposition of critical social justice in the Jewish community. David is a regular contributor to Quillette, and last year his first book was published. It's titled Woke Antisemitism, How Progressive Ideology Harms Jews, and you can read an excerpt of it at quillette.com. So David, how do progressive ideologies such as critical race theory, critical social justice, how do they harm Jews? Yeah, so first of all, I want to say how much of a role Quillette has played in my life, if you don't mind. When I was in the ideological wilderness and wondering if anybody was going to defend the free exchange of ideas, then comes Quillette on the scene. And I start to have a place where I can squelch my intellectual curiosities once again. And it gave me hope. So thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, John Kay and all the wonderful writers and thinkers. All right. So how does this progressive ideology harm Jews? Well, this ideology divides up the world into oppressed and oppressor. And it tends to see any group that is economically successful on average as being an oppressor. And Jews obviously fall into that. Not every Jew is wealthy, obviously. Not every Jew is successful. There is Jewish poverty and the rest. But Jews are viewed, by and large, as a successful ethnic community. We're also viewed as white. So in this ideology, if you're white or you're white passing, that means that you are experiencing privilege as a result of your race. How did Jews come to be seen as white? Because obviously, you know, Hitler didn't see you as white. A number of other Soviet era dictators didn't see you as white either. How'd that come to be? You know, it's a very specific American phenomenon. When Whoopi Goldberg viewed the Holocaust as white on white crime, she believed that Jews were white even in Nazi Germany, which is obviously very mistaken. And Jews living in the former Soviet Union were not viewed as white. They were viewed as a distinct race, whether they defined themselves as such or not. Most didn't uh, view themselves as a race, but that's how they were viewed by the Soviets. So obviously, Jews haven't always even been viewed as white by Americans. Um, Pamela Presky, who I know as a friend of Quillette, likes to say that when whiteness was viewed as a moral good, Jews weren't white. When whiteness is viewed as a moral evil, Jews are then viewed as white. So unfortunately for Jews, this whiteness charge comes with a heavy liability. So I don't see any reason why Jews have to play along, whether one views oneself as white or not. I think that the entire discourse around whiteness is flawed. It's meant to say that you enjoy either privilege or oppression based on your race. I think that's highly problematic. And it's specifically problematic for Jews. So many Jews like me, I mean, I'm, according to 23andMe, 50.4% Western Asian. That's because my mom is from Baghdad, Iraq. So I've never viewed myself as white. But uh, there are other Jews who have Ashkenazic or European backgrounds. They may not view themselves as white. Why should they have to? Why should somebody else be able to impose a pseudo-identity on them? That's interesting, isn't it? Because if you weren't Mizrahi Jew, but you were just Arab Iraqi, you wouldn't be classed as white. You'd be classed as, I don't know, Arab or brown. or But just because you're Jewish, even though half of your family is from the same area, you're seen as white. Doesn't yeah. make sense. Last night I spoke to a group of 
around 40 Latin American Jews at somebody's home. And I asked some of them how they classified themselves. And some saw themselves as Latino whenever they have to fill out the form. What did yeah. they check off? And some of them said white, some of them Latino, some of them don't check off anything. And again, it's an absurd exercise because even most of those Latin American Jews are actually Ashkenazi European Jews, but because they come from Latin American countries, they can qualify as Latino here and therefore gain certain benefits from that. And I just think that we should all stop playing along with this game. It's just a ridiculous exercise and it only harms us. So that's what I tell people. Aquilette, we've argued that DEI harms everyone, but how does it specifically harm Jews? Because Jews are a minority, right? right. You should be loving it. <laughs> yeah, except that we're not a progressive certified minority. And so right. therefore we don't fall into the DEI realm of protection. For Jews, most people who are in the DEI world are ideologically progressive. They tend to see the world as divided up between oppressed and oppressors. They tend to look at Jews as being white or being just Jewish itself is qualifies as a oppressor. And they tend to relate Jews to Israel. A leading DEI practitioner recently put on Facebook, he's Jewish, that another DEI trainer wished him a happy Hanukkah privately. And he said, I would have wished you a happy Hanukkah publicly, but I didn't want to be viewed as pro-Israel. So you can see how, you know, many DEI people tend to look at the world. That's not rare that you would hear something like that. We know also from some studies, one conducted by the Heritage Foundation, that DEI bureaucrats tend to have a very specific view of Israel, which came out in their Twitter feeds and the like. Mm -hmm. And so no surprises you know, I think that. For Jew yeah. And I think for Jews, DEI is a bad deal. Now, that leaves Jews in a dilemma. Jews can either try to insinuate themselves into the DEI framework and get protection from it. Jews can oppose DEI because they think it's inherently flawed, or we can try to change it. And I'm arguing for the Jewish community to move towards either the change or the oppose DEI framework. But most Jewish organizations are clustering around engagement because mm -hmm. they say, okay, if this is the only game in town, We've got to get Jews in there so Jews get protection. But I think that mm -hmm. it only reinforces the ideology that harms us in the first place. So without completely getting rid of it, what are some changes that could be made? So an interfaith Muslim leader, Ibu Patel, argues that you could develop a pluralistic version of DEI, that we should end the reign of the director of diversity, equity, inclusion and start the reign of the chief cooperation officer for a university or an organization so that we change the model of DEI to a cooperative model and away from a divisive model. And that could eventually change it. Now, you are seeing some examples of this in the corporate sector. The corporate sector is rapidly backing off from the old DEI, the anti-racism model of Ibram X. Kendi, and starting to do things a little differently. Many have downgraded DEI from its perch as like a, a C-suite job to, you know, assistant director of human resources or whatever. So we're seeing that trend as well. And I think that's a healthy trend. And if it happens in the corporate sector, can it follow in universities and other places? I think it would take a real concerted effort to do that over a long period of time, because I think DEI is very well entrenched in universities. I mean, so many universities have implemented these DEI statements, which are essentially political litmus tests for professors and, and others to get jobs or to get tenure. 
I think that's extremely damaging. That would be a great place to start is just ending any DEI statement as problematic. So we've just seen a congressional hearing into how some of the top universities in the United States have handled pro-Palestine marches on campus or other you know, forms of protest that can be seen and are seen as extremely anti-Semitic. As you know, Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, she hasn't apologized for her statements that there are some contexts in which calling for genocide can be okay in her eyes. McGill has stepped down. We're, we're waiting to see whether the same happens for Claudine Gay. Do you think that the cracks are starting to show that you know, you've been writing about this for so long, so has Quillette. Do you think, you know, the normies are starting to see what's happening here? Funny, I just used the word normies in an article that I'm working on. Yeah, I think what this did is it produced an epic clash of cultures. You have this culture of the university and all its microaggressions and its ideology that is so accepted and so forth, coming into a conflict with normie culture in Capitol Hill and all the viewers who watch that. And the average American knows that universities have not really been strong adherents of free speech. So when they hear a president of university come to tell them that they're upholding these high standards of free speech when it comes to chance of genocide, yet these are the same universities that implement these microaggression policies. And if you use somebody's pronouns wrong, you can be thrown out of the university and the like. Or these are universities that prevented speakers from coming and speaking. Mm -hmm. And so these are universities First, that have been anything but embodiments of free speech, yeah. now claiming free speech. So mm -hmm. I think what was really on display there was hypocrisy. And it was very excruciating for me to watch because I felt like I knew what was about to happen. And then Congresswoman Stefanik just posed the penultimate question to them, you know, does the chance of genocide violate your policies at the universities? And I think these university presidents could have gotten out of that bind if they had given one or two answers. If they had, number one, said... Yes, we are a campus that believes in free speech. We have not done a good job of upholding our own values of free speech. And now we understand it comes across as hypocrisy when we're upholding it with the Jewish community. But from here on out, we are going to live up to that value. Or they could say, we have strict policies against hate speech. We have not done a good job of applying that strict policy of hate speech to anti-Semitism. And from here on out, we're going to forbid chance of genocide, just as we would forbid a tirade against black and brown people. Either one of those answers would have gotten them off the hook, I think, or at least partially, but it would have put them on the hot seat on their own campuses for challenging the cherished dogma on their campus. And I think that's the problem. What we're seeing here is proof positive of the distorted culture that we have in these universities. And I think the cracks, as you said, are about whether or not a university can sustain itself when it is so out of sync with the larger society. It is out of sync with the larger society. So playing devil's advocate a bit, you founded the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. You obviously care very deeply about liberalism and free speech We've seen a lack of free speech on campuses, both in Australia and the United States for a while now. Where do you draw the line when it comes to anti-Semitic speech? Is it the hypocrisy of these latest events that, you know, upsets you? Or is it 
the anti-Semitism aspect of it. Yeah, there is a tension there, and I think we should acknowledge that. The tension is between a desire for free speech on the one hand and a desire for equal protection on the other hand. In other words, if universities are going to protect other minorities from hate speech, then they have to do the same by law, by the way. This is not just a tension between two different values. By law, they have to provide the same to Jews, and that's where the failure is. I want universities to practice free speech because that would mean that the university is becoming a bastion of open ideas once again. That means that it is restoring its original mission, and I think universities that have been stifling of free speech tend to be the places that are most hostile to Jews in Israel because they're ideologically charged environment. It tells you a lot about a university. So I'm for free speech, but I think that that's why I would prefer to answer number one from those universities. Ultimately, we are going to be bastions of free speech because that's who we are as universities, and we failed to live up to that so far. I think that would have been the best possible answer. And then to go ahead and implement that throughout the university. I want there to be free speech, and that might be tolerating chants that I don't particularly like, that I find highly problematic. But at least then they're going to be places where people can debate openly about all kinds of ideas, and they're not. That's, yeah, quite a brave statement to say that, you know, even considering what's happening now, that you're still willing to hear such offensive speeches against your people. Yeah. There's one other distinction that we should make. It's a distinction between speech and conduct. Some of what has been called free speech here really becomes problematic conduct. So if the Students for Justice in Palestine takes over the courtyard of the school or it invades the dean's office, that's conduct. And that is not protected speech at all. And that shouldn't be viewed as speech. If a group of students at Harvard falsely imprisons another student, which they did, that's conduct. They're not protected by that. If they're chasing people down as they walk to classes because they're Jewish or pro-Israel or whatever, that's conduct. So I think we've seen a lot of really atrocious conduct by students that hasn't been adequately dealt with by the university. And so if I'm a university, the first thing I'm going to do is stop the problematic conduct. But I will uphold speech and I will make sure that becomes a central value of my university. It's just that I have no confidence right now that's the direction universities are going in. Do we know what's happened with some of those students, if they've been made to leave the universities or not? Well, at MIT, there was a group of students that engaged in some very problematic conduct. They accosted students. They harassed students and the like. And MIT decided not to punish them because it might lead to deportation hearing. And I think that's highly problematic. You know, I'm not calling for mass deportations of anybody, far from it. But if you're going to engage in illegal and problematic activity, then you have to face the consequences. And I think it's absolutely absurd that MIT decided to do that. Do we know where these students were from? I'm gathering some of them are from the Arab world. But wherever they're from, if you're going to, you know, you come here following a set of rules, both university rules and American laws. And if you're not going to abide by them, then I think it's quite reasonable to have them go back to their home countries. Okay, so still on the topic of free speech, what about speech that is anti-Zionist? Do you believe you can have a constructive discussion about Zionism without it being anti-Semitic? And is there a place for that on university campuses? Sure. Look, people can and should debate just about anything on a university campus. So I'm not trying to wall off Zionism from debate. Do I think it is 
outrageous and absurd to claim that a country, usually only one country, doesn't have the right to exist, which is what anti-Zionism is. It's a claim that a state that's been around for 75 years that was created by the United Nations doesn't have a right to exist. I think it is absurd and outrageous. And I believe that writ large, it's a form of anti-Semitism because it's not done with any other country. Now, again, I'm not there to stifle anybody. I'm not there to fire somebody for questioning Zionism. I'm not there to get any student who says that they're anti-Zionist to pay consequences. But that doesn't mean I don't have a view on what anti-Zionism is. And I, I do. And you've written a whole book on, you know, woke anti-Semitism that comes from the left. What about anti-Semitism that comes from the right? I guess, historically, we're more familiar with that, at least in yes. the West. Do you think that anti-Semitism coming from the left is more of a concern right now? Yeah, look, it varies depending on when. You know, the reason why so many synagogues and Jewish community centers and the like have security originally, and we've really seen millions of dollars every year now devoted to synagogue and Jewish community security, is because of anti-Semitic threats from the right, like we saw it. Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania, when 11 people were slaughtered, or Poway, California, and the like. So there is a real threat from the right, and I don't think we should downplay it. Some people say that anti-Semitism on the right is like a hurricane. It is violent, it is immediate, but it passes. And anti-Semitism on the left is like climate change. It is slow moving, it is corrosive. Now, what we've seen in the past two months since October 7th is anti-Semitism on the left, that's not like climate change, it's like a tsunami. And so we can see how it can be just as violent as anti-Semitism on the right. But what critics of the right anti-Semitism, but not the left, often fail to do is talk about the ideological CO2 emissions that produce the climate change on the left. And so we're so open about the problems of the right. It's easy to diagnose. Most of the time, it's quite brazen and it's quite in the open. People will say Jews control the banks or the media or whatever. And so you don't really have to work that hard to classify it as anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism on the left tends to be better hidden. It's hidden in the form of anti-Zionism and the like. So it's harder to classify, but it's still very much there. And on the right, we can talk about the ideological underpinnings. We can talk about the great replacement theory and how Jews are viewed as replacing ordinary Americans. I'm sure there's a version of that in Australia or Europe as well. Or we can talk about blood libel, which comes from traditionally from the right. On the left, we have to be able to talk, I think, about wokeism and about how critical social justice ideology fans the flame of anti-Semitism. It creates a permission structure for anti-Semitism. Years ago at Stanford University, there was this debate when a student senator at Stanford was brought up on charges for saying that it is not anti-Semitic to say that Jews control the media or the banking. And what happened was at the hearings, several students condemned them, but said we should be able to talk about the intersection between white privilege and Jewish privilege. And in other words, it was okay to talk about that same Jewish power trope if you couched it in the terms of privilege, the woke vernacular, but not okay to talk about it if you talk about it in the traditional anti-Semitic right-wing vernacular. And so again, I think the two forms of anti-Semitism manifest differently, but they're both dangerous in different ways. And how much influence have donors had on free speech when it comes to Israel or Jewish issues? In your book, you mention there's been an increase, I believe, in donations from Qatar. Is that correct? Yeah, Qatar especially is a major funder. The Qataris 
have put more than $5 billion into the American university system in order to capture certain departments, Middle East studies and the like. In some cases, they're even doing joint research with Texas A&M on nuclear issue, which is quite concerning. The Qataris reportedly, according to a new report from the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy, which has been following this very closely, have a slush fund of between $500 billion and a trillion dollars that they can spend. This is 300,000 Qataris, by the way. The country may be 3 million or so people, but only 10% of them are actual Qataris who are able to punch above their weight because of this extreme wealth. And unfortunately, it is a Muslim Brotherhood country that is acting in a very dangerous and mischievous way and has achieved non-NATO most favored nation status with the United States because of its cooperation in dealing with Iran and the like. So I think it's very dangerous, and I think that they're going to come under heavy scrutiny. My understanding is that they're very worried about this level of scrutiny and that the United States has leverage and can actually shift this away. Now, do I think this would still be a big problem on universities, even if a Qatari money evaporated? I do. Do I think that the Qatari money makes it much worse? I do. Why should non-Jews be concerned about anti-Semitism? So I think anti-Semitism shows that there's a, a larger disease in society. When anti-Semitism grows, there's always been anti-Semitism. But when it flares up, it usually means something else is wrong in the body politic, that the body politic is sick. Anti-Semitism tends to work its way into larger conspiracy theories and dogmas and the like. So that tends to mean that these other dogmas are gaining ground. QAnon on the right, or the Great Replacement Theory, as I said, or wokeism. These are all sort of very problematic meta narratives that I think do not bode well for a healthy society. There are indicators that something is wrong. Jews have always been the proverbial canary in the coal mine. And I think non-Jews should be concerned about it. And non-Jews should be concerned about it because they should care about people that are not themselves, you know. And Jews are usually very active, productive members of society, highly philanthropic. Why would you want your fellow American or Aussie or European to be under the gun, to feel insecure fundamentally in your society? So I mm -hmm. think non-Jews should care because it, it, it ultimately comes down and will affect everybody, including them. The New York Times columnist Brett Stevens recently said, and I'm paraphrasing here, a society that can believe anything about anything can believe anything about Jews. So I worry that a society, American society, that's willing to believe crazy conspiracy theories is really planting the seeds for an even worse outbreak of anti-Semitism down the line. I've been amazed by some of the anti-Semitic comments I've seen, especially on Instagram and Twitter to some extent. There's a guy called Jackson Hinkle. Do you know him? Yes, He's I have on Twitter. seen his tweets. I was quite happy that Elon took over Twitter. I thought it was a good thing and I do support free speech, but I also think that Twitter is a private company and there are some people that are just beyond the pale and I think Jackson Hinkle is one of those people and he has been banned off a number of other platforms he could go to Rumble. He's on Rumble. He could go to, you know, a number of other more free speech absolutist platforms where QAnon people like to hang out. I don't think he needs to be on Twitter personally. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, look, Twitter is a privately owned company. Now I want Twitter more or less to demonstrate a commitment to freedom of expression, but 
there's got to be a distinction between demeaning rhetoric and ideas. I mean, to me, that's where the Overton window is. The Overton window is there to protect a wide range of ideas. When you're demeaning people, when you're using racial epithets or anti-Semitic epithets and slurs, that's not, I mean, it's protected in the United States, at least it's protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution, but it's not speech. It's not what we're trying to allow to thrive on these social media platforms. You know, uh, recently, Elon loud back on Alex Jones. Alex Jones is a conspiracy monger of the worst kind. I mean, he's the person who claims that these young kids who were killed by a mass murderer, Sandy Hook, were, you know, that it was just a big facade. He's a horrible human being. And I see no reason why any social media platform should platform him. He's not adding anything to the conversation. So I want there to be the widest possible range of ideas discussed. But some of these things are not ideas. They're just demeaning rhetoric. And a lot of it is simply misinformation. It's simply yeah. untrue. And it's bizarre that during COVID, so many things were censored due to misinformation. But now the same isn't being applied to misinformation about what's happening in the war or Jews in the United States or Australia. There's blatant misinformation about them. The double standard is clear. Yeah, I worry that Elon Musk has sort of lost his bearings in recent months, that he's not being intellectually consistent in the way he thinks about these ideas. I wasn't impressed with that tirade before the New York Times. I think it was demonstrated that he really didn't understand. No advertiser has to advertise with Twitter. They're not doing anything wrong by saying, I prefer not to advertise with Twitter. You know, So he's going to document how they've killed his platform. He killed his platform unfortunately. And he's somebody I've long admired like you, and I was happy he took it over. And I like some of the increased functionality of Twitter, That, but I, I think he hasn't behaved well. And I think he's allowed it to get to his head somehow. So I'm worried about that. Can you explain a bit about the history of critical race or critical theory scholars and their criticism of Israel? Because to my understanding, Israel is the self-determination of the Jewish people who are Indigenous to the land seems to tick all the box. Indigenous, self-determination, critical theorists are all about that. So what's the issue with Israel and how far back does it go? So there were several things happening at the same time in the late 1960s. One was the emergence of postmodernism and then subsequently post-colonial theory that took by storm the university system and the like, and fundamentally shifted the kind of scholarship such as it is in the universities in the United States and then in Europe as well. And then the second thing that happened around the same time in the late 1960s is the, the Soviet Union set out to delegitimize Zionism and created a new field called Zionology that sought to really discredit Zionism in the eyes of Soviets, but also internationally. And just a few years later, there was a resolution before the United Nations that passed the General Assembly, Zionism is racism. And that stuck around for more than 15 years. So you can imagine how Zionism then became front and center of sort of this post-colonial movement over time because the Soviets had successfully 
propagandized everybody into thinking that Jews were not indigenous, that they were colonialists coming in to colonize the indigenous Palestinians. Obviously, there's a complex history leading up to 1948 and post-1948, but to think that somehow Jews were colonizers in a land that had long been a homeland for Jewish people and where there's been uninterrupted Jewish settlement since the biblical times is just absurd and ridiculous. That's how they were able to brand Israel in the eyes of the far left. So I think when ideologues now think of Israel, they think of this country that's a settler colonial state. They turn the history, the complex and nuanced history of the Israel and Palestinians into this sort of caricature that, you know, Israel came in, kicked out all the Palestinians and has dispossessed the Palestinians systematically for the last 75 years. It's just an absurd tale. And yet that's what passes for discourse and scholarship now on the far left. And it's very hard to even converse with it because it is so extreme and so one-sided. And uh, I think it makes it very hard to even solve problems. Like if this becomes the dominant discourse on the left, probably many Palestinians themselves will say, why should we ever have to sue for peace again? Because people think that it's justified to exterminate Israel. This is not the kind of discourse that's going to lead to a two-state solution or any kind of peaceful solution between Israelis and Palestinians. I'm not sure how old you are exactly, but I'm sure you've I'm 57. seen... <laughs> okay. Israel and Palestine have had conflicts throughout the years. Is this the worst you've seen it? Are you most concerned now about the future of Israel and the future of Jews living peacefully and happily in the West? Are you more concerned than ever? Well, look, uh, I wasn't around in 1948, so I'm not that old. In 1948, mm-hmm. I think there could have been an extinction level event. Israel prevailed in that war, but the Arab world wanted to destroy it. In 1967, the Arab world was calling for the destruction of Israel. Jamal Abdel Nasser called for the destruction of Israel, and they readied the Arab publics for the destruction of Israel. And Israel routed the Arab armies in six days and took over territories at that time that they tried to use as bargaining chips for peace. In 1973, Israel was on the verge in many ways. The Syrian army was on its way in and could have cut off the country into two. So that was a dangerous moment. The Soviets might have intervened in 1973 had it not been the United States uh, that deterred them. So that was a dangerous moment as well. I was, you know, in first grade at the time. Because really in the last 50 years, there hasn't been an existential threat in the way that what we see now. And the reason why it's an existential threat is that Hamas and now Hezbollah have forced hundreds of thousands of Israelis out of their homes. So you can't, if you were living along in southern Israel on these communities, they're living in hotels all over the country. If Israelis do not feel comfortable living in their homes, they'll leave the country. Why would they stay for that? You know, the country can't protect them in a fundamental level. The same is happening up in northern Israel. There's vast population dislocation because Hezbollah is, is firing rockets and mortars and the like into Israel. And so ultimately, the country has to defend those citizens. It can't be that large swaths of the country are uninhabitable because either Hezbollah or Hamas, both of which are Iran-backed, are trying to make the country unlivable. That's why it is a kind of existential threat and that the Israelis are going to have to deal with it. Hezbollah has something like 200,000 rockets and missiles in its possession. That is a tremendous arsenal. It can make Israel living hell. The Israelis realize now 
that they have to push back Hezbollah behind the Latani River so that they cannot continue to threaten Israeli citizens in the way that they have. And I think that there's going to be another front of this not too distant future. So, yes, this is a very scary time. The country has never been more unified. And it's ironic because right before this happened, the country had never been more divided. There was this excruciating battle over uh, judicial reform. I was at an Oxford University with top Israeli thinkers and the like who were saying they had no idea how the country was going to extricate itself from that internal crisis and that they thought it was going to lead to a civil war at that time. It was very scary. And it's amazing how unified the country is. It's just right after October 7th. So, you know, that's the flip side of this is the country knows what it has to do. And there's widespread backing for the military campaign. Within Israel. Within Israel, exactly. Now, you know, how that interacts with the rest of the world, where you have a increasingly shaky U.S. government and you have European leaders who were initially supportive of the war. But once there were domestic unrest, particularly in places like France and the U.K., they start to back off. I think Germany has really been one of the most supportive countries in the world, ironically, and given Israel all the leeway it needs to do to, to repel and dismantle Hamas. But that does enter into Israeli strategic calculus. How could it not? The United States placed warships to deter Iran from attacking and to deter an all-out Hezbollah attack while Israel was dealing with Hamas. And the United States needs to restock Israel with weapon systems and mortars and ammunition and the like. Israel needs the United States and has to factor in the United States. But Israel also needs to finish the job with Hamas. Hopefully it happens soon without the loss of too many more lives. Yeah, and that's tragic too. You were the first person to tell me about the Red-Green Alliance. So yes. could you tell our, our listeners about that? Yeah, the Red-Green Alliance is the convergence of radical Islam and radical progressive politics. Um, it's been around in Europe for quite a few decades, probably 20, 30 years in Europe. And it's a more recent phenomenon in the United States, especially in the last 10 years or so. And you see this at these protests on campuses and on the streets. You, it's a combination of radical Islamist ideologues, potentially violent and aggressive, who have won over progressive allies who see them as being these sort of revolutionaries and at the vanguard of their movement. And so many of them carried the water for these radicals right after October 7th, where they put out these memes that celebrated the hang gliders and others who came in and murdered young Israelis. It's a very dangerous phenomenon. That's why dealing with the Qatari financial threat is so important. We'll also sap at least some of the energy behind this movement. It's obviously mystifying to a degree. Like, why would a progressive who will get all up in arms about the use of pronouns and every microaggression feel that it's somehow a good relationship to have with radical Islamists who would throw them off the rooftop for being gay? So I think it's obviously a silly development in that progressives are not applying what their progressive values. They just see the radical Islamists as being sort of the true oppressed group. And then one has to defer to the oppressed group in this ideology. And so they defer to it. After October 7th, there were probably a lot of progressives who were privately horrified by what they saw. But as soon as they came together with their coalition partners who were celebrating what happened, they felt 
this need to defer to it. So groups like the Democratic Socialists of America and the like, I would imagine that there was much more unease within their coalition. There were people who resigned from it after they came out supporting the mass murders. And that's because of this sort of ideology that demands that you defer. And I think that's really what's at behind the Red-Green Alliance and why it's become such a potent force in both the United States and Europe. I've seen an alliance here between radical Indigenous activists who've been very active because we recently had a referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, which failed. I guess they need something else to be very passionate about. I actually saw an Indigenous activist saying that Hamas should be celebrated. A lot of these people are given a platform on our public broadcast or on TV, on radio. It has been a strange alliance. I'm not sure if you're seeing a similar alliance with Indigenous activists in the United States. Yeah, I mean, to the degree that you would lump them in with a larger progressive movement, I think that Mm -hmm. that's absolutely the case. Intersectionality did not originally mean that you would connect these different causes together, but the version of intersectionality that emerged in Western societies was to connect very unlike causes like Black Lives Matter and anti-sex violence all under the banner of intersectional activism. And that's what we're seeing today. You see these groups automatically supporting each other and supporting the people who they perceived as being the most oppressed without really much questioning. You're not really supposed to question people who are bona fide oppressed. You're supposed to listen to their lived experience. And so that becomes the modus operandi of these groups. And that's what leads to this kind of bizarre activism where you can see a gay rights group, an LGBTQ rights group in the United States supporting Hamas terrorism that would have been used against them. It's a bizarre development, but it is one that we're seeing front and center. I don't think anyone would have believed that there would have been these left-wing groups who are professors in universities or are pushing curriculum in K through 12 schools that have contracts with the government to provide curriculum, who then go out and support the quote unquote resistance against Israel right after October 7th. I don't think that people can imagine teaching young kids that being on time to school or work is a white supremacy value, which is what they're teaching in my school system. I don't think they could have ever imagined that the quackery we've seen develop over the years in universities could become a dominant discourse that would then come back and be a source of anti-Semitism and illiberalism and shut down major institutions and so forth. But that's where we're at. And that's what we have to fight against. I always use the metaphor of the iceberg. For so long, when we look at the iceberg above water, whether it's the anti-Semitism or the liberalism or the cancel culture or whatever, we don't understand what's beneath the surface with the bumuck of the iceberg, which is this ideology that has just spread in our society and has changed the way people, maybe it's a small segment of people, but it's a loud segment of people who have a great deal of institutional power to capture institutions. And I think we've got to start to fight below the surface if we're going to be successful, whether it's in reforming universities or fighting against anti-Semitism or recapturing liberal discourse. We've got to fight beneath the surface, not just what's obvious to us, not that which is manifest. I'll be there fighting with you. I'm so glad to have you as a quote-unquote ally, Zoe. (laughs) Solidarity. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so 
to finish up, I know you've been working overtime. I know that the Jewish community is really suffering right now. It's been a very difficult time. What can you feel positive about right now? What's your message of positivity or optimism to the world? I do think a lot of Jews and a lot of Americans, having watched those hearings on Capitol Hill and the like, realize that there's a problem beneath the surface, as I was just saying. I think that people are starting to rethink their political commitments and the like. I'm not trying to move anybody to the extreme right or the even the moderate right. I just want us to take a fresh look at who our alliances are, what our political and ideological commitments are, get people to start challenging the structures at universities and, and the like. I think we're closer to that now than we've been ever. Today, I spoke to a Jewish group in Miami, Florida, and I think probably I would have faced a lot of pushback against my views just two months ago. And now there were a lot of people who are in some state of crisis or some process of rethinking their entire worldview. And I think that's very healthy. And I think that's happening everywhere, not just among Jews, not just among Americans, but it's happening in the West. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Quillette Cetera. And wonderful to be see with you, you another time in the future. Thanks so much, Zoe. Thanks, Quillette.